This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the Futurati podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati podcast. Tonight, we're joined by Michael Cushman. Uh, Michael is the former president of Engaging Change, head of strategy at Garlic Media Group, a senior fellow and managing director of the consulting arm of the Da Vinci Institute, as well as a noted expert on the future of education, the future of real estate, and myriad other topics. If you enjoy this interview, please don't forget to like the episode and subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out our website, futuratipodcast.com. Michael, thanks so much for coming on the show. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. You are most welcome. Glad let's, to be here. Let's hear a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on the many, many things you're working on today. <laughs> well, uh, actually, I mean, part of my background, of course, is Da Vinci Institute. And uh, that's kind of an interesting little story right there. Just a friend of mine. Um, who knew Tom and he met me and we were talking, uh, I was talking with him and eventually he says, you know, you remind me of this guy, Tom Fry, you should meet. <laughs> and I guess that was 20 some odd years ago. And uh, so Tom and I, of course, worked together uh, since then. And um, uh, so uh, and why, why am I a futurist? I've often, often people ask that question. And I think it's really because my father was one. I didn't know it at the time, and I don't think anybody had the term of he was a futurist, but he was a long-term planner for AT&T. And so he was always thinking 20 years out. That was part of his job. And uh, he had multiple degrees. He was a physicist, and um, he was an electrical engineer as well. And then he was connected to Bell Labs. So as a kid, I mean, I went to Bell Labs. I mean, I, I didn't appreciate any of that. Uh, but I was dragged to World's Fairs. So I you know, so went to see the newest uh, aircraft, whatever it was. And so that thinking was in me at a more uh, unconscious level. And when I was a consultant in the business world, uh, I began to incorporate futures thinking in my projects. And when we were doing transformations inside companies and looking at, usually they were stodgy old companies and they need to rethink what they did. The first thing we did was started to look at uh, what is this industry going to be five, 10 years ahead of, you know, ahead of where we're at now. 
and sort of get us to go where the hockey puck is kind of approach. And that was incredibly successful. Um, so that's, I've just began to do that at a pragmatic level with businesses. And uh, then the rest was, you know, meeting Tom and then saying, hey, you know, I am a futurist. <laughs> and, and, and then uh, just sort of declaring you are a futurist. Now, my, my specialty, I think, is that, you know, I do have an MBA. I did uh, a lot of strategy work, um, you know, not every part of the world, but certainly on three major continents. And what I figured out over time was that uh, the, what business schools teach is strategy comes first. You know, you figure out your strategy and then you you execute on that strategy. What doesn't it doesn't work anymore because strategy was based on looking at market forces, you know, what who's dominant and do you have entry barriers and exit barriers and what are the economies of scale? But none of those things matter in the tech driven world where the technology changes so fast and that most of the disruption comes from outside your own industry, that really what you need to do first, if you're a CEO or something, is you really need to be a bit of a futurist. You need to have some forward thinking um, in order to know um, where the disruption is going to come from. It's not going to be your competitor. And uh, so that's really kind of what I, th how I think and how I process. And that's just a combination of education, consulting work and, and working as a futurist. It just sort of falls into that slot in my brain is automatically, I start thinking about, well, products, what services are coming? How's this industry gonna be disrupted? Or how could you um, leverage what's coming to you know, make a difference and make more money or whatever you want to do. So what would you consider to be like the top three most disruptive technologies coming down the pike here? Well, I, I'm going to be honest with you, Tom. It depends on what industry you're in. So, you know, healthcare is very different than everybody else, right? So what's disruptive to healthcare? Uh, but the most universal ones are clearly all the digital technologies, right? So... Um, I, I like to think of it in terms of digital twins, which I think will play into our conversation later. I really think that concept of having a digital equivalent of a human being, a equivalent of, of a, your assets, all your assets, of your real estate, um, of your finances, so that it's because that changes healthcare, that changes um, real estate um, development. It, you know, everything is also become uh, smarter, right? So we're adding sensors and intelligence to things to make them smart and make them visible into the internet. So when you combine this idea that you can take, you can make a digital representation of the physical world that's exactly the way the physical world is and all the systems that run, say, inside a building, right? Uh, and you can know real time with sensors what's going on in that building. You have essentially a digital equivalent of your building. So I think that's really where we're headed. It has to do with the metaverse that we're, we're talk, gonna talk about. Um, it's really disruptive in the sense, I also hint that AI can learn from these environments. And I think that's, an, that's something that's very powerful we're not considering so much is that once we create simulations of the real world, um, and that, the real world could be physics, it could be quantum physics, it could be chemistry, uh, then we have uh, AI that can learn from those digital models. And it's probably more apt at learning from digital models than it is from the actual physical world. So as we begin to have a duplicate digital world, we also are, are going to accelerate AI. So that's why with, so AI is gonna be my last 
piece on that. Now, I, I really think highly of blockchain. There's, you know, we could go through a lot of a lot of different things that we could talk about that I think are important. But we have to. We're contractually obligated. <laughs> <laughs> People with a futurist podcast, we have to touch on the blockchain. <laughs> I do think it's very important, uh, but um, you know, there's so much going on right now. Yeah, just just to let you know, Trent is actually working as a blockchain engineer now. Mm. Yeah, I'm working at uh, Elementus. We're we're building the, the the first universal search engine for blockchain data, and so a lot of what I do is I actually data science is is the meat of the majority of my projects. Uh, but yeah, algorithms to parse transactions and I tag entities who are doing different things in the blockchain. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly okay with segueing into that topic as well. Um, so, but uh, yeah, so I mean, it's it's just really hard. And any, I do change my mind uh, once in a while on what's the like the most powerful, most important uh, technologies that are coming. It's it's um, it's fascinating to keep up, and uh, you know, but you know, there's biology, and you know, it depends. I mean, we're gonna. Be able to change our genes and add genes, and you know who knows what. So uh, there, there's a lot of technology. Is that Ramez Nam's flux in the background? Is that is that his book? Uh, I see over, over your left shoulder there. Uh, <laughs> I don't know which one is that. It's it, t- top of the <laughs> stack on the right there. Well, I just asked because. That's oh yes. I, well, there's flux. Yes. That's uh-huh. a yeah. Well, ne- Nexus, Apex, Flux. Those were. It's one of my favorite science fiction trilogies. Ah, yeah. yeah. He talks a lot about inner mind communication, which is enabled by these little nano nanobots that infuse the brain, but can send radio signals out. And I, I thought that was pretty remarkable uh, as a thesis, and and not so, not so remarkably like far away as these things go. It, it, like he, yeah, I used to think it was very far away, but I mean, it's really impressive how fast the human brain interface, digital interface is coming along. I agree. Um, yeah. So let's, let's stick with this uh, idea of digital twins and the metaverse and, and the, the idea of cloning the physical world in, in, in creating kind of the digital twin of it and what some of the ramifications of that will be. I guess my first question is what is, what are the trends you see driving that move, the, the development of, of uh, a, a digital replica uh, of the real world? Well, you know, I speak on real estate with two real estate groups a lot, and it's really obvious that that's an industry that's been behind the times. But this is an area where they um, get have a lot of clarity on and they see it. And all of the vendors in that space are making buildings smarter. If you think about every single building that's out there, they're all pretty dumb. And uh, we... And all of the potential that's coming from material science and biological science of COVID has really um, put some pressure on knowing what's going on. What's the air quality inside the building? What's the water quality? Is there bacteria or some other pathogens floating around in the air? And so uh, there's tremendous pressure to add smarts and sensors to buildings. And it makes a lot of, there's a financial incentive to be able to say, yes, I can say this building or this hospital or whatever is safe from pathogens. Um, and as the, so there's a real strong move um, in the area of sensors to get them smaller, cheaper, connected. And that's, um, that's going to just explode. It's just never, you know, the, we haven't even thought of the, all the possible applications of that, but um, you know, I've talked to people in mental health, for example, and the idea that when you walk into a building, the building's smart enough to see that you're agitated. So if someone walks into a waiting room and they uh, 
are behaving in such a way that they, the AI can say that this person's going to explode pretty quickly if they don't get serviced. Um, these kinds of, there's just so many applications for buildings. Someone's sick. Um, a lot of people don't realize Wi-Fi can go through walls. And so Wi-Fi can be just like you know, sonar or something like that. It can be used to bounce waves off. Well, you can find people on the other side of the wall and you can find out whether they're lying down. You could tell their breathing rate. Uh, and so if someone's sick, you the sensors could notice that someone is sick in the building, even though they're alone in their office and alert somebody. Now we're going to get to the point where there's a, you know, every aspect of a building is digitally represented. The entire uh, water flow, the the heat and cooling, um, you know, the airflow, the movement of people, wh who's in the building, every single person by ID, um, and uh, also the state of the building, right? And we'll be able to know if the building has moved a quarter of an inch over the last five years. So all kinds of things will, will be make sense to be able to do. And as this becomes cheaper and cheaper, it's going to become easier and easier. And it's there's um, what's nice is to see is the vendors are getting this. And so the vendors are showing up to the owners and say, I can I can make your building smart. And here's the ways I can do it. And here's the benefits. And it's happening. And it's happening worldwide. So that, that's just one aspect of that. But then when you get, once you have all the buildings. So I worked on this project, oh, I guess around 2008 um, with SAIC on the, on training, um, uh, security people, secure, uh, you know, we had 9-11 and we had a lot of emphasis on what happens if there's a bomb in, you know, a city or some chemical warfare or, the, you know, at a local level, some terrorists were going to do all these things. And what we were looking at is taking LIDAR of important buildings that we thought might be attacked, like the Capitol, like Washington Monument, you know, the Statue of Liberty, and then uh, being able to have those digital representations of those landmarks and also famous buildings, famous hotels, four-star hotels, et cetera, so that we could train uh, forces to be able to go in those buildings um, and practice what if there's hostages, what if there's a bomb threat, what if, et cetera. And so we were working on, we were looking at that quite a while ago, but of course the data was tremendous. There wasn't enough, you know, storage, there, there wasn't enough bucks to spend that, but it would be a great way to train, um, you know, to be able to train uh, special forces and things like that. And uh, now you can start to see that this is going to happen. You're just going to, you know, LIDAR is a lot cheaper. The data storage is a lot cheaper. You don't have to use uh, all the data from LIDAR. You can kind of use algorithms to fudge it somewhat. And you're going to see just, you know, just, just like Google Earth is, you know, you can pretty much click on any place and see an image. Well, that's all going to become really precise at some point. I think the other cool thing is, for example, is that we can actually use waves and other uh, sensors to look down through the Earth. So, so now you can see down. Yeah, it depends on the what's there, but say twelve feet, thirty feet under the ground, and know what's under the ground at any point. So this this is really interesting. I mean, we don't we don't we just think of the surface. Wouldn't that be kind of cool if we knew the surface? But what if we know what's you know twelve feet under the ground as well? We know where all the water is. We you know we can see if there's um, pockets underneath a potential uh, sink. You can, know, uh, can, can we can we tell if there's coal mine fires under the? Yeah, I suppose I don't see why not. It depends <laughs> on how far down it is. Right. But I, I think that um, 
the, the just, sensor just, world just, hasn't even begun to explore. Just to let our uh, listeners know, we, we recently had a massive fire uh, called the Marshall Fire that burned over a thousand houses um, in uh, uh, close to Boulder, Colorado. And uh, it was super high winds that day that caught everything on fire. And there, there's people that are suspecting that it was started by underground coal fires. And uh, uh, I don't think they've actually pinpointed what the root cause of that was. But uh, if you drive around those neighborhoods, it's pretty tragic. Yeah, it is. It is. I hadn't heard the theory about the uh, underground coal mines, but uh, 100 mile an hour winds probably had something to do with it as well. <laughs> well, right. But there was a start to the fire, though. Something sure. started it. Yeah. And that was the yep. key. And, yeah. and a world just papered in sensors presumably would be far better positioned to react to an unfolding tragedy like that. Yes. So, so I don't know if you're if you're familiar with this event that happened in 2013 at Fairchild Semiconductor. It was called the Trillion Sensor Summit that was hosted by uh, one of the vice presidents there. He hosted it at Stanford University. And they invited um, uh, some of the key people in the sensor industry to, to actually carve out the pathway how long before we get to the first trillion sensors in the world. And, um, and they concluded that it was somewhere around 2022 or 2023, and that by 2036, we we're supposed to reach 100 trillion sensors in the world. So, so what that means is center, sensors are much more easy to mass produce now. They've become very ubiquitous, very inexpensive, and we're just using sensors for everything. And that's, that's what's the enabling technology behind digital twins. I agree. Yeah. And then you add uh, um, to be able to store all that, right? Be able to take that sensors, but also be able to like, for example, LIDAR is a good example. We, right. We're, we're sensing it, but we're also creating a digital representation of that. So we, we can have sensors about real time what's going on uh, in a building, but we can also have sensors that actually represent that we can create digital space of the physical space, right? right. So we know so right. that down to the quarter inch or the eighth inch depends on, you know, how close the LIDAR is. Um, so now you could navigate through a physical space um, that is exact replica, you know, of, of a physical space from a digital point of view. And I, I do think though, this also opens up a lot of, you know, AI learning as well, because AI can, once it has all this digital information and how the world works, it can, we can just like, you know, when I was a kid, I remember, um, you know, X uh, playing tic-tac-toe with a computer, right? So I'm, you know, I'm eight years old and I'm playing <laughs> in this big computer and the best thing it can do is do it, is do uh, tic-tac-toe. But, you know, we just had what Gran Turismo uh, be um killed by AI. AI can, can now drive a car in Gran Turismo better than any human being can. Um, so there's no stopping as we digitalize everything. I also think there's no stopping AI from learning anything. So if you created, for example, you know, a biologic, uh, how to do surgery, you know, program in a simulator. Well, guess what? The AI can do the simulator too. So we're we don't, I just don't think we're intentionally realizing that every single thing that we do digitally to help ourselves learn, to teach our children, whatever, we're also creating a platform for AI to learn and get ahead of us. Well, what are some of the dynamics that's driving the shrinking of sensors and their, their ubiquity? I'm thinking of something like a Moore's Law equivalent, but for sensors. 
Is there is. And it's not it's really uh, what's going on is, um, you know, as we get down to the quantum level of physics. Right. So we are able to um, make sensors a lot cheaper and smaller to the point, for example, they don't need power sources that we can uh, direct a wave to the to the uh, sensor. And that wave itself is used as energy to run the sensor. Well, so the what sensor, kind of, what kind of wave? Any kind of a wave, like a Wi-Fi. You know, any kind of wave. So you can just power um, just, those. You can just power those off of like a, a Wi-Fi transmitter. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. So it's really the physics. It's really the the <clears throat> the um, quantum physics is really changing. Material science is an area that's unbelievably uh, fertile for massive upgrades in what we do and how things work and we are uh, the discoveries are just uh, amazing but they haven't they're not commercializing yet so we don't see them so much and even when they do we don't really notice them so much but um, there's so much going on and again AI is helping us create new materials I, I saw this cool study that was done where they let AI learn chemistry and uh, it came up with its own version of the periodic table different than ours and then they um, let it read a whole bunch of physics articles and chemical articles and a thousands, tens of thousands of them. And then it predicted some new new materials. So they thought, oh, this is very interesting. Turns out they were valid predictions. So then they went back and they said, I'm only going to give you up to 2010 articles. And it was able to predict the discovery of what happened between 2010 and 2020. So it predicted the discovery, by, you know, by just having information from 2010. So, so, so kind of, AI, that kind of means you and I are going to be out of a job then. Huh? It does mean it does mean that it does mean. So I, I I could see that wasn't clear. So they they once they they predicted some new materials. They actually said, well, what if would it would it have predicted? what happened between 2010 and 2020 in material, reduced, science. In material okay. science if we reduced the knowledge back to 2010 and the answer was yes it predicted discoveries that happened during that period of time um, so material science is really fertile we're using ai in that space to create new materials and then we're trying to figure out what to do with all these materials but if you just look at graphene and all the potential in graphene and all the different things they're doing with it they dope it with gold for example they do multi-layers they change the angles on it um, and then we find out it has all these crazy properties so sometimes it's a conductor sometimes it's a resistor some you know it's um it's a capacitor it's what is it uh, right and, and and we are really just on the cusp of some amazing things happening in material science well all of this is miniaturized really really small stuff and so the sensors become like you know if you have a graphene based sensor it's what it's one molecule thick so maybe it's two or three molecules thick um, but it's able this is um for example pathogens uh, in the air are also being used with these tiny little um, uh, sort of, you know, whether it's graphene or some other thing, it's just being able to kind of match a, a molecule will get, a particular molecule will get trapped. So that particular bacteria um, can be identified by its shape as it hits sort of a screen of graphene, think of it that way. And as it moves around on it, it will fall into place. And if it falls into place, we know it's this particular type of bacteria or this particular type of virus. Um, this is wild stuff. 
It really is. How much thinking have you done about the potential of using quantum computers to accelerate material science? Yeah, and that's everybody knows this. So if you so uh, let's talk about proteins, for example. There's 10,000 proteins in the human body, and proteins are very complex. They're really big molecules with hinges in them. I don't know if you know this, but like 80 years ago or so, scientists didn't even believe there was such a thing as proteins. They couldn't imagine the human body had proteins because they were too big. The molecules were too big. And then they said, how the heck could a molecule that big float around? How could it get into your brain? How could it go through various organs or whatever and connect the cells and whatever? Um, and they just didn't realize that it had hinges, that it can morph and change shape. It's, it, it's a shapeshifter molecule. And so it can get to the parts of the body it needs to get to if it's not living inside a cell uh, by, 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 you know, squeezing down and, and, you know, becoming the exact shape it needs to be to get through some little valve or something like that. Um, so, so when you, so, but proteins are cr incredibly complex and they're just big, big molecules. Well, while we're using AI to try to, to predict how they can fold. And this is very important. So we can, we have not our, our own set of proteins, but of course, all of life is based on proteins. And these, right, they're the little engines and the tools that make us. No, nothing that we, you can see in us and experience in us is just exists. It, it, it's made by proteins. And so it, it, our immune system, our digestive system, and all the creation of all the matter in ourselves is done through proteins, these little tools. Well, they are really complex, though, for to figure out where, where the hinges are and what do they do and how do you make this protein make whatever it does that it makes. So a protein might you know, be used to, to digest food, a particular type of food or acid or whatever it does, and then it turns it into something else. It breaks it down into its more, uh, more basic chemical forms, and then it turns around and new other proteins build something, right? Build muscle, they build bone, they build blood vessels, whatever. So it's pretty amazing the, the mechanical engineering that's going on there at that level. And uh, AI is really helping us understand the complexity of those molecules and predicting those molecules. But we also have proteins from all other life, uh, plant life, you know, other animals and things like that. And they, these, they have proteins that we don't have, which of course they have genes that we don't have. And all of this comes from genes, right? So the genes are the recipe book, the proteins are the, what gets cooked. And then the, the, what you, once you have a protein, it has a job and it does its job. Um, so, so there's an area where, so you can have bacteria that has proteins in it that makes things for us. We can change the bacteria's genetic code so that it has, it makes different proteins for us that we can use, makes materials at a fairly raw level thing that we want to have. Um, but we can also like engineer new proteins and engineer synthetic DNA um, so that it produces proteins that have never existed before. And we could Im implement those things in our own bodies. We could tell our cells to create proteins that aren't in our own DNA. But once we, because that's exactly how COVID vaccines work, at least the ones from Pfizer and Moderna. Well, what are some of the proteins that might come out of that and what would their applications be? Well, um, if you look at most genetic diseases, about 9,000 genetic diseases are just really one gene is missing or, or it's malfunctioned in some way. It's not quite right. So sickle cell anemia uh, uh, is an example where the cells, the red corpuscles are not round, right? They're not ovals. They look more like uh, sickles. Um, sickles, yeah, but just, there's another <laughs> shape I'm trying to think crescent, of. Crescent, crescent, crescent yeah. yes, crescents. <laughs> That's one gene. 
So the one, one of the way this solved, this is currently happening, is you don't have to, one approach is to go change the genes, right? So go into the DNA and change everybody's DNA. But another approach is to create the RNA that tells the cells to make the correct um, red blood cells, the right, the right shape, and just introduce that into a person as a therapeutic. So you, you take a pill or you do whatever it is, and every day, uh, your body now has the correct, it gets into the right cells that produce, you know, in your bone marrow or whatever that is. And it then um, uses the correct RNA, which overrides the, the DNA, and then it's producing healthy blood cells. So I think we're going to see a lot of therapeutics this way because it's safer than going and changing your genes. We're not there yet. We're like, hey, I got a problem. Go change my genes. Right. I think that that's a little risky. So we're going to start with therapeutics that are RNA-based that tell to create the, the protein the right way, even though you have messed up genes. And now you have, um, you've just overcome up to 9,000 different genetic diseases by introducing the correct proteins that the body needs to do its function. Yeah, you know, I've been getting a lot of aches and pains lately, and I don't think they're working fast enough. <laughs> <laughs> they need to work faster, but it's really, uh, I think that's a big area of science. You know, a lot of people don't, Moderna was formed in uh, 2010, I think, uh, specifically to deal with RNA therapeutics. It wasn't really a vaccine company, um, but they just overlap. Yeah, do you think that we're going to actually see some cure for cancer coming out of this then? Yeah, there's lots of – now, yes, absolutely. Um, I think we're already there to some extent. Um, so there's there's uh, sort of solid cancers and there's kind of liquid cancers, I guess. I'm not very scientific about it. But um, it, it makes a difference of what kind of cancer it is. But in general, there's multiple um, ideas. Of, I would say there's 20 different – actual experiments going on 20 different ways to, to deal with cancer of course they're not all the same but um the some are to create a poison pill for the cancer that the cancer so you can use messenger rna to go into the cancer cell and then produce a protein that is poisonous to the cancer mm. or that it does something to the cancer to turn it off or kill it or do or do something so that's one approach, and that was the original thinking, I think, be, behind Moderna, was to think about it from a cancer point of view as to, to help raise their money. The, um, there's all kinds of other ideas about killing cancers. Um, there's probably a pretty long list. Uh, there's, there's some that literally you do f have um, mechanisms to go out and find the cancer and then go uh, essentially chemically kill the cancer. Um, there's, you know, on off switches in the cancer, believe the people uh, trying to just turn them off. Um, if you really look, though, I think cancer at a different way, you realize that cancer, there's uh, um, there's precursors to cancer at the genetic level. So there's there's about 163 genes that we know of today that as they begin to change so that your RNA uh, um, expression of your DNA begins to change. So you have DNA, your original DNA, but as you are exposed to environment, the food you have, uh, radiation, other things, um, the copies of your DNA, you know, your RNA become different than what they're supposed to be. And um, that's being used 
by your cells to do its job. And we can, where I think what we're really going to not just cure cancer, but I think we're going to be able to predict cancer. So we're going to be able to do very precise uh, analysis of DNA. So your sequencing won't be your entire DNA. It will just be the things that we know that are precursors to cancer. It'll probably cost 10 bucks. Everybody will get it done every year. Um, and you will be able to say, see that, ah, you're moving towards cancer. And we'll also start to go, these epigenetics lead to cancer. So we know that this paint in your house is what increases the probability of you having a particular type of cancer, or you're eating this uh, type of food or um, oil or whatever it is. And we will be able to get the epigenetics So this creates the change in your genes and those creates in the genes are precursors to cancer. So here's the therapeutic solution. We can get that out of your environment or out of your diet, or we might be able to um, find ways to switch back that RNA to correct it and correct. And, and also as well as DNA, of course. Yeah. So, a, a friend, friend of mine was, uh, as, as we know that obesity is such a big problem and, in the U.S. and lots of parts of the world. Um, and a friend of mine pointed out that if you look at pictures of Woodstock, there was not a fat person at Woodstock, <laughs> not a single one. And I think that's pretty amazing. Um, so when we talk about fixing the human body, um, I, I really want something that fixes everything, not just a one-off fix for this and a one-off fix for that. I want something that makes me so I'm not uh, not obese, that I don't have cancer, that I don't have heart failure, that I don't have diabetes, that I don't have all kinds of things. And um, it seems like we're, we're going at this in a very complicated fashion, trying to do these one-off fixes. And so uh, I, I would be hopeful that we would have something that's more of a universal solution rather than, uh, um, I don't know, too much tinkering with the body. Yeah, I agree. Well, if you think about this from the point of view of epigenetics, so that almost everything that we have that goes wrong, like obesity, right, where some people just um, are starting to store lots of fat, uh, these ha are environmental conditions. So um, uh, there was a study that was really alarming that I've not seen any follow-up on because probably lots of people don't want follow-ups, but it was looking at soy oil. Soy oil is used more than all the other oils combined in the cooking in America. So all fast food, it's very inexpensive. Use soy oil to fry foods, for example. So it's 53% of all consumption of oil is actually soy oil, despite you know the many other types of oil there are. Um, and they they fed the some rats uh, this soy oil for a long period of time, and it changed 99 genes in the rats, including a make, not only made them obese, but it also made them stupid. So it reduced the amount of new neurons that were created in the brain. So it's very likely that it's our own food uh, that is making us fat and it might be making us stupid. And because it's cheap, um, we are uh, doing it. And, and until we start to make these connections between what we what's in our environment how does it change our genes and then how, when those genes change what does it do to us um then we're going to have this hodgepodge you know 
all crazy ways and trying to fix every little problem. But once we start to understand the epigenetics of things, we'll have this bigger model, I think, of knowing um, what causes what and then also how to reverse it. It seems like the sensor technologies we were discussing earlier might help facilitate those advances. Have you looked into the possibility of microscopic cameras or you know nanobots or something that suffuse the blood and, and track mm-hmm. hormone levels, track what's happening in, in your cells, that kind of thing? I years ago kind of looked into it. It all seemed kind of fascinating, but years and years away. What's the state of the art in that field? Yeah, the state of the art is happening. Uh, not so much, uh, again, with people, I think, in practice, but in experimenta- experimentations, um, more and more little tiny robots, and we're learning how to make them swim and, and simulate other things that move throughout the, the uh, body. We can direct them with light. Um, there's, so the whole thing is also not only to get them in there, but how do we get them to go where we want them to go? Um, so the, this is important for the cancer. We're getting back to that to be be able to direct uh, the poison pill type of thing to the cancer. So how do we not only get it in the blood system, but how do we get it there? And then it also has to change once it finds a cancer cell. It has to then uh, morph into something or you know, develop a point or something to get inside the cancer as well. So uh, there's a lot going on. Um, you can think of it as tiny, tiny, tiny robots, uh, little swimming things. And um, where you could, but it's very likely that this is going to be targeted delivery of medication, I think is probably the first thing you're saying. So if your liver is sick, um, we're going to find ways to that uh, these things only affect liver cells. So they go through the body, they find the liver when they go into the normal process. Oh, I'm in a liver cell. Here's now I do my thing. And so now it transforms into a therapeutic for the liver. Um, you know, it's years ago, we were able to do, I'll give you a good example though. Um, the You know, people have lost their pancreas from diabetes type one, right? Where the body's immune system has destroyed their own pancreas because what happens is, is a virus gets in the body the immune system is a sort of a blunt instrument sometimes the virus looks a lot like in a way the shape or whatever the immune system some people's genetic response uh, and the immune system accidentally kills their pancreas so some experiments were done uh, with rats about uh, I guess at least 10 years ago to just create pancreas cells uh, that are everywhere in the body. They just can attach anywhere. They don't, you don't have a pancreas. You just have pancreatic cells that exist uh, and attach in various places around your body, wherever they feel like attaching, but it worked. And they were able to turn these mice uh, from being diabetics into not being diabetics. We're always just scared the crap out of us though, is these kinds of solutions. That's the thing. You know, medicine moves slowly uh, in the implementation part, because we worry about, oh, what would that, is there some other consequence of solving one problem and do we create some new problem? And so, so on the one hand, there's a lot of cool stuff going on in the R&D side, but uh, how long does that take before we feel it's safe enough to use in a pragmatic way for, um, you know, solving people's health problems is, that's where the delays. So switching gears a little bit here, um, most of the the things that you're talking about are going to require a higher caliber of person to um, uh, to work with these emerging technologies, and and quite frankly, the 
the current education system is ill-equipped to uh, produce remarkably better talent out of the back end. Um, can you can you talk through some of your thinking about how the um, your thinking about the education system changing, and um, uh, how we're we're going to somehow gravitate towards a better way of learning? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, uh, you know, you and I have um, talked about this for a long time, and we had the the Future of Education Summit. I don't know how long ago it was that. And I don't know much has changed. A little bit's changed since then. But generally, uh, the, the nature of schools is fairly ingrained both in law and and custom and mores about uh, the way we do classrooms. Uh, this pandemic was a great example of just how not to do it, right? Let's, let's replicate the classroom digitally. Well, the classroom is terrible in and of itself it wastes talent there's so many people in the room who are all being forced to learn at the same time the same way and um you know some are bored out of their minds and others are lost and so so let's replicate that digitally and make it even worse uh that's the problem um that you know we have an institution that wants to maintain itself in the status quo it's very difficult to move the needle um so I don't expect huge leaps within the industry. I'll call it an industry, the industry itself. I think it's only going to be at the edges in uh, private enterprise where there might be a reason for um, educating people uh, with the newest possible technologies um, and fast. And those people are highly paid. So you can you can imagine and say, you know, in medical areas or uh, high tech where as new technologies unfold you would want to spend the money to to accelerate learning as fast as possible so i do think that's one area and i'm also yeah i mean let's face it all kinds of cool stuff's happening the military uses brain stimulation right so they've found that if you stimulate the cerebral cortex um the right way with a kind of juicing it up, um, the neurons uh, learn faster, right? So the the chemistry of learning is accelerated, for example. So that's one, that that technique is real. Um, It turns out that there's some other issues with that. You learn whatever it is you're learning, um, but you're not, you know, it's pretty focused learning, like how to fly a jet engine or something like that, um, jet plane. But um, there are some side effects to that, but generally, you know, there's one approach um, to just try to to do zap that. It. I think zap it. Yeah. Um, I think you know there will be some where we could be make some. I think we have to think of it all also from the point of view of making superhumans. Um, so the, it is the brain computer interfaces. Uh, can we accelerate? the amount of new neurons that are built every that are created every day so we depends on how healthy you are but you know the average person is somewhere between a thousand and three thousand new neurons are available for use every day to 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 add to your knowledge if you want to use them if you don't use them not much happens with them um so can we increase that can we increase that genetically can we increase that through diet or whatever something else so that it's five thousand or 6,000 new neurons. So then you could double the capacity to learn um, right there. Uh, So the biological solution. 
I, I like to think of it more a little bit along the lines of superhumans as opposed to the tech, but I think obviously you can use immersive technologies uh, for some things. I mean, certainly to do surgery and to fly planes and all of that, we know that simulators work and uh, they do help people learn faster. And as you add more sensory information, heptics, et cetera, for the hands, um, then you're having more biological feedback that you're using your normal feedback systems that are already built into your body to help accelerate the learning. And, and so it's the feel of the skill as well as the knowledge that you're simultaneously learning. Right. So there, um, the way I've been thinking about this and discussing this lately is the this idea that very soon pregnant women are going to have the option to go to their local geneticist to discuss certain enhancement options for their unborn child. And so there'll be a checklist of, I don't know, 1,500, 2,000 different options. It's not just the facial features, the, the nose shape, the eyebrow shape, the, uh, the eye color, the hair color, and things like that, but, but also um, the different uh, proclivities that people have, the different uh, tendencies, the different likes and dislikes. And, um, and very likely this will give rise to uh, a new grade of human being, a superhuman, if you will. And so the, uh, these women will give rise to super babies and the super babies will grow up to be super kids and superhumans. And very quickly then we will find that we have no way of educating the super child. Uh, the, the child that is not always going to be super, I mean, he's, Kids are going to have super tantrums, and they'll they'll irritate everybody else. That's normal, and and so um, I, I I think we're going to have lots of interesting uh, conflicts as a result of this. But at the, at the same time, I, I ask this question: of What's what's the value of a superhuman? Uh, what's the lifetime value of a superhuman? And it very likely will be something like a hundred x a hundred x over what a typical human is today. And, and so then we, uh, we get into this whole category of what you can do with superhumans and you ask about how many Einsteins and Mozarts are born in every uh, million uh, people today and can there be more and should there be more? And uh, that's where we get into some real interesting questions. Um, I, I actually see that the, this next generation of AI buddy bots, AI assessment bots, <coughs> um, AI teacher bots and coach bots, and all of those get incorporated into a device that we're, we're verbally talking back and forth to all day long, and it's actually uh, assessing what we're learning and what we're understanding and uh, it learns what our interests are and everything about us and it becomes our um, our most prized possession and very and i i say that very likely the the first form factor of these glass will be smart glasses that uh, can actually see everything we're seeing hearing everything we're hearing and and then be able to uh, assess how much of that is retained as we uh, as as we go through those learning experiences. Um, so I, I I've been going kind of down that path as as I think that um, we're going to have to by 2030 it's projected we need to train another three million AI engineers and um, 
and we, we don't quite have the capabilities for doing that right now. So the, these are highly, highly prized, sought-after individuals. And I think that's, the, uh, that's part of the crux of this matter that uh, I think we need to figure out what the true capabilities of AI are and how, how they, they support us as humans, not rather than acting against us, because there's so many people think that it's us versus the AI and us versus the robots, and, and it's actually us with them. So how do we uh, integrate our, our lives in a way that uh, we can work together and accomplish great things? Well, I agree with your first, we'll, we'll go through those in, in a order. When you brought up the idea of bots as being educators, Right. Um, I always go back to thinking about the studies around mastery. So, you know, you have Benjamin Bloom and others uh, who demonstra demonstrated that classrooms waste about 98% of the population's ability. So basically what they did was um, the mastery idea is that you, you have to master a topic before you move on to the next one. This way, no one gets left behind. Everyone moves at their own rate. And when they, uh, this is really um, equivalent to a tutor. So let's talk about it from the actual tutor experiences. So what they did was they took a student in the 50th percentile in a class and they took them out of the class. They spent the same amount of time on the material, but with a tutor, an individual tutor working with that student instead of being in a classroom environment. That student in the 50th percentile moved up to the 98th percentile. That means every, if you now extrapolate, that means how much human potential is sitting in that classroom that's not being tapped. If everybody had their own tutor, how much smarter would we be? How much more knowledgeable would we be? How much better would school be? Right. So, so the question, so the, the idea of a bot being able to replicate a tutor is to me a magic standard that we should be focusing on and pushing AI to figure that, using AI to become that, like you said, so that it knows everything that we know, basically. It's a dialogue and it can show you things and it can assess you at any point in time to know how much you know or don't know. What did you remember or didn't you remember? What, what, what works best? What sort of schedule of reinforcement is necessary to, so that you retain knowledge? How do we, you know, fixing misinformation, identifying fixing misinformation as well? Because things are going to change faster and faster and we're all going to be uh, having old knowledge about how the world works um, more and more. So there's going to be a lot of unlearning as well. So I think that that part of what you said is right. And I also think in the short term, we're going to be working a lot with robots and a lot with AI. Um, you know, I, <clears throat> one of the examples I like to use is, uh, is anesthesiologists. They're the highest paid doctors uh, because they can kill people pretty quickly when they make mistakes. But Today, an anesthesiologist's job is boring, really boring, uh, because the machine does so much already. They are just sitting there watching the machine do most of the work, because most, most surgeries are scheduled surgeries. They're not emergency room surgeries. That's harder. If someone comes in and they're on crack cocaine, uh, it's a harder job to do the anesthes anesthesiology correctly. But um, for most surgeries, uh, the person's weight's known they, when, with the condition. They, they came in not having eaten and blah, blah, blah. So it's really um, 
fairly uh, consistent that uh, this, based on all the information, the machine can know their level of consciousness and is monitoring them a hundred times a second with each one of these sensors, and that they just sit there. These he or she just uh, is bored out of their minds, but legally they have to be there. You can't have a surgery of a certain kind without having an anesthesiologist. So it, th this is a. I like this example because one, it shows that that this person could be replaced at some point, uh, but we're, we're a little scared to do it at the moment. We're not there yet. Or, um, but human beings have been asked this question: Would you trust a computer? to be your doctor or whatever, to give you a diagnosis, or would you trust a human being to give you a diagnosis? We are already at the point that people say they trust a computer's analysis or diagnosis of their cancer or whatever more than they trust a human being. So we are going to go through this period where we work together. It's going to be rough, I think, because some, some cases uh, people will get lose their skills, the things that make them feel valuable, um, engaged, and what, what they do, you know, new surgeons don't know how to do surgery anymore because the machines uh, today, the surgeon can do the stitching up after the doctor, the main doctor goes in there. You can tell the computer to finish it up. And so no, so new students of surgery don't do that work. They used to do that. They used to hang out and when the doctor was done, they would do all the stitching up. Well, now they don't do that anymore. So, so this is, this is a, it's not as simple and easy as that we're all going to work together and it's all going to be smooth, but I do think, yes, this is what's going to happen. Um, but I do think I am, I'm convinced that anything that a human being can do, a robot will be able to do better in 20 years from now. Anything, any puzzle or problem or knowledge that we need to learn, a computer will learn better than us. And I think that's where the real social issues, what, how do we have meaning in life? What do we do with ourselves? How do we have an economic system that sustains us? All that kind of stuff. So we, we'll be wealthy and poor simultaneously in a sense. So, so you think, Two decades from now, there will be virtually no human labor left. There'll be no, uh, not everywhere in the world, of course, because some people are still taking plows and, and oxen and <laughs> furrowing uh, rice paddies. But um, so no technology ever goes away. But uh, yeah, the dominance, I think, will be true that there won't be anything that uh, can't be a human can do like they'll be able to run faster than us they'll be able to lift more than us they try to think of anything they'll ski better than us whatever thing that human beings do they will be able to do better than us and so that's an interesting place to be and i also think it will also be on the brain power side they'll be able to read our faces and know our emotions better and have the sensors in our body to know how we're feeling and what what do we, they'll know what we want before we know what we want yeah, but will will it ever mean as much to have your computer tell you that they love you as have your boyfriend or girlfriend? Uh, I don't know, but uh, they have experimented with them in senior citizen homes and things like that. And there's there's <laughs> you know um, it's sort of helping. It's it does people are lonely. They they'd rather have a bot than nobody, I guess, a robot. Right. So. Yeah, I, I think it's important not to be too sanguine about that timeline, and, and you can you can defend that projection in a, in a moment. But 
while I agree with you in principle that human intelligence isn't magical and there's no reason to think that eventually you couldn't have a silicon based algorithm that's able to do the same thing at the same level or even better. I think that the history of artificial intelligence has demonstrated pretty conclusively that it winds up being harder to totally replace human beings than was commonly thought. And I'm sure you're familiar with the, the fact that we've alluded to several times in past episodes that in, uh, I believe it was 53 at the Dartmouth conference. Uh, one of the organizers said that a dozen scientists working for half a year ought to be able to automate pretty much everything a human being can do. We can build a human level artificial intelligence and it wound up being much more difficult than that. And it wound up being more difficult in very unintuitive ways. So many of the things that we thought would be, that would be very hard to automate, like advanced math or physics were much easier than something like navigating an obstacle course or reading faces. And I know that we've made a lot of progress on those things as well, but I tend to think that human introspection is very shallow. There's a lot more going on in cognition than is commonly appreciated. And Per perhaps the day will come when, when robots are doing all of these things, but it would surprise me if 20 years from now, uh, the, the president is, is an algorithm. Yeah, I, 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 I agree with what you're saying. And I did work in artificial intelligence um, in the 80s. So when we, we did um, expert systems, I worked in expert systems. And yes, they were very flawed and they could only go so far. And then they just didn't work. Um, part of it was processing power. Part of it was algorithms. Um, what I mean is that you take any task, specific task, and they will be surpassed not the collective tasks that a human being I do. I, okay. don't, I don't see any value in creating an equivalent of a human being uh, as a robot and as intelligence. I don't see what, why would you bother to do that. But if I needed an anesthesiologist machine to outperform an anesthesiologist, then um, it could be better than probably every anesthesiologist on the planet Earth in 20 years. I don't see why that's not true. I think it's almost true today. Uh, diagnosing cancer from, from an x-ray, that's already being done better by AI than it is by humans. So you take pretty much any task that many of these are very expensive, um, highly skilled people, and you break those tasks down. Um, AI can do well. You know, we're, you're seeing in robots a, a lot of interesting things happening. And as we get into more flexible um, body parts and things like that, with, you know, be able to do touch and we put sensors in the fingertips and all of that, then you're seeing some amazing things being done on robotics to lift. They can lift more than we can. They can do delicate work. They can cook. So maybe, yeah. you know, yeah. So, so would you ride on a plane that was flown by a robot pilot? Well, first of all, they are. They're, they're most, that, <laughs> they, that's they mostly are. happening today. Yeah. That, is, that already happened. So if, you know, that's, so when the pilot takes over, they crash the plane is what the problem is. Do you remember <laughs> that? Do you remember that? Do you remember that? Hap that's happened several times when right. the, the, the pilot has taken over. The one that was, you know, a crash, I think it was in San Francisco, maybe almost a decade ago. But uh, someone who hadn't practiced and landing a plane in a long time took over just to try it or whatever, brush himself up on it, and he crashed it. Um, there was that crash in the Andes. Um, it was the same thing. Um, what we, so anyway, yeah, so I have no problem with that. Um, so yeah, we're. I mean, if that's why we have uh, all this uh, autonomous vehicle stuff going, because we're if people go, wow, if we can fly planes, maybe we can drive cars. Yeah, I'm... Um, I, I've asked lots of people this question: Would they get on a plane if they, if there was no human being in the cockpit? 
And um, universally, they said, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> right. Well, they got so, uh, yeah. I, well, I still want the human there to handle the 0.01% of edge cases where the, the AI is just not there and it just can't make that decision. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the, uh, these are, uh, there, there's all kinds of situations where the level of trust is just not there yet. And, um, and so, yeah. And then from, from an ownership standpoint, I mean, the, the motivation behind being an owner of a business, I mean, that's, it's difficult to replicate that in a, in a, a bot form. Um, and so there's, uh, there's no financial incentives that appeal to a robot or to AI. Um, and so there, there's lots of things that um, the, the kind of the psychology of being an entrepreneur just doesn't make sense to a, to a robot. Um, so I, I still think I, I'm kind of in, in Trent's way of thinking that uh, automating a lot of these things out of existence is way more difficult than we can imagine. And uh, well, it varies yeah. by the function as well. And I think entrepreneurship is an excellent one. Just, just being able to look out and say, okay, well, there's this need that should be filled and I'm going to fill it. And then parsing that out into discrete steps. AI could do individual bits of that. So there's been planning algorithms since I don't know, the eighties, probably the, the seventies or the eighties, but, but actually course correcting in real time, accounting for all the factors that an intelligent human being can account for. It's, I think there's a lot more there than it seems like. And part of the reason that we don't understand it as well as we do is because it's just hard to introspect when those things are happening. I don't have a look into the algorithms that are running when I'm generating new insights or when I'm solving problems like that. And I don't think it's magical. I don't think there's any reason to suspect that eventually a computer can do it, but I think it will probably be a lot further along. Um, I, I'm, I'm less sanguine about that, that being right around the corner. Oh yeah. yeah. I, I agree hundred percent with those, those examples are the uh, kind of the extreme point of view of creativity and being able to have markets and, and there's the, you know, what do humans want? I, I'm always wrong about that stuff as well. I mean, it's really <laughs> hard to, to know, right. That the whoopee cushion is going to sell, you know, hundred million dollars worth of <laughs> merchandise. <laughs> it's not, it would, it's not obvious to me. No, um, it's, not. it's obvious to somebody. So, yeah. uh, you know, and would an AI come up with that? Really unlikely. Um, yeah. I, don't, I don't think they would have ever invented the slinky either. Well, lots right. of little things like that. Yeah, <laughs> lots of toys. It, it's it's yeah. just kind of remarkable that it took off the way that it did. Yeah. But or, I will or, say, Tom, that you and I should be concerned. Although that we're older, we don't have to be so concerned. But I did see where um, someone has tried to, you know, has started creating a futurist uh, AI. So yeah. what it does is it looks at um, it looks at science, it looks at R&D, it looks at things that are being developed, it looks at the amount of money that is being invested, and it goes back through all time and looks at all previous work and, and makes an estimate as to what are the most likely things that seem to be worked on the most right now, the most papers are being written on, the most patents are being created, and then uh, where's the money going into those things and how many venture capitalists, et cetera, et cetera, are involved in those areas and predicts the likelihood that that particular technology will um, come yeah. about. Yeah, but what it, what's not good at is is analyzing what's missing, mm -hmm. uh, what's not there. Or, or reconceptualizing it all together and saying this is the wrong way to look at the problem. I'm, gonna, I'm casting all of this out and starting over from the beginning. Sure. Yeah. No, no doubt. But I think they're probably right 90% of the time. If there's a, a lot of people working on something, there's a lot of money behind it. Um, yeah. 
then a lot of people have looked at it and are willing to bet on it. It's probably going to come to market. But as you talked about uh, earlier, uh, AI, for example, you know, a lot of money went into AI in the in the seventies and eighties, and it all went down the toilet because none of that was a none of that approach worked. The GoFi approach. Yeah. yeah. And, and the hardware wasn't there. No. Well, I love it. This has been a fascinating conversation. It's always great to get your survey of whatever in the hell's going on in the different parts of the science world. So we really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you so much for the time and you'll have to come back. Yeah. It's thanks, fun. Michael. This is great. Uh, okay. It's always fun to ramble. All right. <laughs> All right take care. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>